What I've learned through all of this is that fame is fleeting. You know, the person who I remember is famous 20 years ago, people say, who's that? But what's permanent is family. And I have been blessed and I'm crying. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Dr. Sally Shewitz, my mom, has brought an entrepreneur's mindset to her life's work focused on dyslexia, recognizing the condition as a prevalent and underappreciated need, then working tirelessly to advance the science and enact the policy required to fully unlock the potential within so many brilliant individuals, helping them access what she has famously termed their sea of strengths. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shewitz. And we are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytical expertise to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Hey there, David. How are you doing today? So, Lisa, I'm doing great. So, in a discussion about parents, I can't resist asking or pointing out that you were the mom of an exceptional daughter who graduated college fairly recently and seems to be successfully embarking on a career and life of her own. As a dad of three somewhat younger daughters, tell me, what did you do right? Did you have, <laughs> do you have one or two guiding principles? I think it'll be an interesting experiment to ask me what I did right and then to go ask her. But... Um, I would say that my guiding principles are bring up all the hard stuff proactively so they know it's okay to talk about it. And then when they do, be very transparent about the answers and always admit your own failings. I think it's wow. just important to just be real with them. Well, I'll certainly vouch that uh, whatever you did worked. So, uh, uh, so far, so, so good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so far, so good. Exactly. So I'm... Uh, I'm obviously uh, so excited about uh, this particular show, and um, uh, I think we'll move along quickly, but I wanted to start with a little bit of a vignette uh, and pick up, uh, and then go back and pick up the story from the beginning. So a couple of years ago, I was at the, probably the most remarkable event I've ever been at. It was a conference organized by the Yale Center for Dyslexia and Creativity, a center my parents co-founded and co-lead. The conference was bracketed by remarks by Senators Chris Murphy and Bill Cassidy and President Obama's senior advisor, Valerie Jarrett and featured this unreal panel, Super Agent Ari Emanuel, Attorney David Boyes, Economist Ann Swamp, Producer Brian Glazer, Surgeon and previous Tectonics guest, Toby Cosgrove. And the thing was, each panelist was dyslexic and described in poignant terms both their own struggle with the condition and in several cases, the impact of a life-changing talk with my mom, which helped them for the first time really understand the condition, what it meant and didn't mean, and how they were not alone. These were world leaders in a range of areas who in several cases were literally brought to tears describing for the Yale audience the impact and often the secret shame they had uh, felt as they coped with the condition that is now in large measure to the work of my folks and their colleagues so much better understood. So this sounds like a pretty heady achievement for the daughter of two immigrants who had escaped Eastern Europe at the turn of the century and arrived in the U.S. in search for a better life. So we'll start there where I'm told uh, so much starts. The Bronx, New York where a guest was born and grew up. So uh, what was it like at the time growing up in the Bronx? We didn't even welcome your mom officially yet. Come on now, Dr. Sally Shaywitz. So, such a lovely 
thing to have you here on the show today. I don't know how you put up with this stuff from him. <laughs> so, um, first of all, I'm so honored to be here with two people who I admire so much, Lisa Sinanem and David Shalit. And I will do my best. Uh, so the question was, how is it to grow up in the Bronx? <laughs> I loved it. I loved growing up in the Bronx. Uh, we, I grew up in an you know, apartment. And e those who know me today would be shocked to learn that I was in athletics. I <laughs> loved roller skating and other things, uh, ice skating. And I, I think the most important thing in growing up in the Bronx when I did was to have a wonderful, loving, close family. What were you supposed to be? Did they have expectations, your family, about what you were supposed to grow up to be? Well, that's uh, that's such a good question, Lisa, because I've heard other people tell stories, and oh, this and that. I, I think my parents, particularly my mom, just wanted me to grow up to be loved and to feel that I was loved. She had no, and my father as well, no grand scheme. She always wanted me to feel loved, and I did. And just to give her all to me and my older sister, Irene, who I'm still best friends. You joked that uh, your mom may have been a bit on the um, protective side, which uh, strikes me as both believable and imaginable. Um, someone who uh, taught you the value of self-advocacy, we'll say, early on. What do you mean by that? I think um, I'll give you an example, uh, and I know it's, it's kind of familiar to you. I tend to be late a lot. <laughs> so my mom would always walk me to school. It was two blocks away. Or when I was younger, even put me in the stroller with a blanket over me and push me to school. So if I came in late, I would say to my mother, I have to go to the office, mommy. She says, you don't go to the office. Come with me. And she'd walk me up the steps to my room. Now you go in. No problem. One of the things that, that I learned um, from her, among many others. So you started off in your career planning, Pretty thinking long. about being a lawyer after wanting after playing a judge in a second grade play. You got fixated on that, I hear. And then after college, you were pre-law, but ended up in pre-med. How did that all happen? Well, I think it, you know, it was second grade to college. Is, is <laughs> and, and I thought that I wanted to do something that would be important and that would make a difference in people's lives. And while I thought law could do that, I thought there could be nothing more important than saving a life. So um, when I was in my junior year at the City College of New York, I switched to pre-med and then I had to go to summer school between my junior and senior years so that I would have the courses I needed to apply to medical school. Wow. And then um, uh, senior year of college, it seems like was a real inflection point because um, I know, uh, you got accepted early into the medical school of your choice, Einstein. Uh, I appreciate that your male colleagues at the school uh, complained that you took their spot um, <laughs> and that your, uh, your parents were uh, delighted, uh, although your dad, I think, still has some thoughts of you becoming an accountant. Uh, but your mom cheered as a uh, She's always believed in you and your limitless potential. Uh, but then something terrible happened to her. Do you want to continue? Yeah, well, um, as you can imagine, I was very close with my mother. And um, she developed cancer. 
uh, uterine cancer, and this is a lesson in this. And I remember being with her at the doctor and him saying, oh, don't worry, 90% of the people live. I said, oh, that's great. Um, but she kept getting sicker and sicker. And at that time, you know, we didn't have Google. So I would go and look it up in Indica, Indicus Medicus, what new treatments might be. And I remember there was some peanut pill from Mexico or this or that. But you know, obviously, um, it didn't help. And I was very lucky. I had wonderful professors at City College. And one of them was my organic chemistry professor. And I went to him um, finally and I said, look, my mom is in the hospital. She's very ill. I can't come to class and I can't do the write-ups. If you want to fail me, you can. But my priority is to be with my mother. So I'm going to go see my mother every day. And I did. And I never regretted it. And funny, the people who were in rooms around her at the hospital said, oh, she must be some extraordinary woman. I've never seen children so dedicated and devoted and just being with her. But she deserved it. We were there all the time. And the irony is my sister's wedding anniversary is April 8th. So I... I switched the day I was going to be with her so my sister would have that day off. And of course, that's when my mother died. Mm. So, um, but I will tell you, I think of her every day and bless her and feel so grateful for her. So you were well, can, one of four yeah. women, Sally, and a hundred students in your medical school graduating class. And you came from a family where, you know, women were considered to be able to do anything. Um, how did you experience that? And, and, you know, have you found yourself subject to gender discrimination over time or has it been easier for you? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I was one of four. And to be very honest with you, the men were much nicer than the women. Really? I don't know if I'm supposed to say this in this day and age, uh, but the women were kind of catty and, um, you know, formed a clique. And, and the men were very nice. You know, I'm not talking about every woman and every man, mm -hmm. but as a whole, I made good friends with a number of the men. Well, I guess when you were um, in your uh, internship, uh, that's when you met dad, who was a resident at the time. You continued at Einstein to pediatrics for residency, completed that, and then uh, did a, a fellowship in uh, developmental pediatrics. Ultimately, um, shortly after... Uh, you, you wound up moving to uh, Dayton when um, uh, dad was running a research center there uh, where he was assigned during the Vietnam War. And then you, you made a decision um, to hang out with the kids and found out that you loved it, which led to a piece in the uh, Times Sunday magazine. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, I was, um, you were two years old um, when your twin, twin brothers, were born and I made sure they bought you a gift so you, you would like them and I think they bought you a fire engine. <laughs> and then uh, uh, your father had to go to the military because at that time was the Vietnam War and you had to serve two years. So he was assigned to Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio and he ran a laboratory there and I was home with my three kids. And you know what? I loved it. 
I loved them and I loved being with them and they were so sweet and nice. These are my brothers you're talking about? David <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about? <laughs> and you. And right. I remember your, your, I think it was a preschool teacher fell in love with you and really developed a great relationship. So then- well, staying on point, how did this lead to your writing? Okay, so then your father was offered a professorship at Yale and we moved to Westport, Connecticut. And I, I still very much enjoyed staying home with your brothers and you. And I actually wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine called Catch-22 for Mothers. Um, and I, I still can picture that getting that phone call. I picked it up in the kitchen and I'm listening and it's Barbara Wyden. Her son, I think, is now a senator. And she's saying, we're accepting it. I said, really? <laughs> and it was nice because I wrote about how there's so many instructions for women. This is how you must breastfeed your child. This time, and this is what you must do. And I felt so comfortable as a mother with my instinct. And I didn't think that should be taken from women. But I also learned a lot of surprises. Like I stayed home and I'd see, oh, there was a talk. I'm going to go hear that. And the other women say, oh, yeah, let's meet and we'll go play tennis. So, well, it so sounds like you found the, um, uh, you know, being a stay-at-home mom in this, in this setting, you found the available social environment fairly uh, intellectually uh, deadening. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, uh, you know, I was very happy. I was stimulated by my children and trying to think of what's best for them and what can I do. And I, I really... Um, what kind of reaction did you get to both that article and then you started to be referred patients, um, even like, essentially without being requested, and then you eventually sort of captured some of these experiences in an article from Ms. Magazine, Mommy is a Doctor. Um, uh, what kind of reaction did you get to your writing? Yeah, it, it was mixed. It was really, um, it was really mixed. You know, some people said, oh, that was really good. I wish I had written that. I guess um, uh, you um, were um, soon recruited by Yale to see learning disorder patients. Um, and you said the reason why, which I thought was really intriguing and um, uh, also kind of relates even to the idea you know, with entrepreneurs and the idea of like how people wind up in niches is because you said no one had any interest uh, in, in this area for the most part at the time. And it was viewed as a, as a super low status type of specialty. Can you all help us understand that? Yeah. You're about dyslexia and learning disabilities, you mean, David? Mm -hmm. And even then, people didn't refer to dyslexia specifically. It was more like a, 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 a huge mixed bag. And uh, Yale kept asking me if I would come and see these um, children and families because uh, no one else wanted to. Hmm. And finally, um, I, after being home for seven years, I said, okay, I'll do it part-time so I could still be with my children at special moments. That led to a, a pretty groundbreaking study on the topic, as I understand it. Yes, yes. I no. saw these lovely children and their families and try to figure out what's wrong with them. I looked at the literature and it was only about kids who had already been identified. And I wondered, what about all the others? So together, Bennett and I started what became known as the Connecticut Longitudinal Study. 
We started it in 1983. And I always tell people I was 12 years old because then they start figuring out how old is she? Ooh. <laughs> and, and so it was what's called um, a, a random sample, pop, random population-based sample. We invited children from, and we worked with a survey statistician. We invited children from different areas of Connecticut so we'd have diversity, et cetera. And we were able to enroll 445 boys and girls. And I'll just tell you a small anecdote. I asked people, well, how do I get people to come to the talks I'm going to give inviting them? And they all said, have food. Always food. <laughs> so then uh, the, the, it was wonderful. We got 95% of the people. We started in kindergarten. And we had multiple measures uh, beginning in first grade, uh, IQ test, achievement test, self-concept. The parents filled out a questionnaire, a lengthy one that we had developed. Teachers filled out, and this is funny too, because we called it the teacher rating scale. They wouldn't fill it out because they thought they were being rated. <laughs> so then we called it the multi-grade inventory for teachers, and they filled it out, and schools, and so forth. And then we did that through 12th grade, and then we did it, and uh, we did it periodically in college. And the people are now in their early 40s, and we are continuing. So this is the 37th year, right? I mean, this is unreal for a longitudinal year. study, yes, and with I'm an incredible retention rate, right? Right, 86 percent. So you developed a model of a philosophical model out of this, or a clinical model out of this, called Sea of Strengths. I, I am so concerned that so many people think because you're a slow reader, you're a slow thinker, mm. and nothing can be further from the truth. I, recent, I, I wrote a book in 2003, published, called the, uh, Overcoming Dyslexia, and in March of 2020, I published the second edition, by the way, the first edition sold 400,000 copies. Wow. Not bad for a book on dyslexia. So <laughs> I, I was so concerned that people thought if you're a slow reader, you're a slow thinker. Mm -hmm. So together, uh, Dr. Bennett Shewitz and I developed the Sea of Strengths model of dyslexia. And what that says is that in dyslexia, there's a weakness, a small weakness in getting to the sounds of spoken words. But it's surrounded by a major sea of strengths in higher level cognitive thinking, concept formation, reasoning, critical thinking, vocabulary, problem solving, empathy, general knowledge, comprehension. And so the problem is the slow reading is visible. The thinking, the big picture thinking and reasoning isn't. So we've developed this model. And I think it captures the possibilities in dyslexia. The last chapter of my book is called A Person Like That. And there I write about the most distinguished people you can imagine, all dyslexic, who came to the top of their profession. Attorney David Boyce, cardiac surgeon uh, and head of the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Toby Cosgrove, financier, um, uh, Charles Schwab, writers, John Irving, 
uh, scientist George Church. I mean, a whole bunch of really brilliant, oh, Ari Emanuel, <laughs> brilliant people, but nobody understood their brilliance to begin with. So what's interesting to me is I think you, Sally, were really um, engaged in thinking about what I would call now, or we would call now real world evidence, but really patient-generated data, patient-generated feedback into the system about what they were experiencing and how engaging with them in treatment you know, could change treatment for the better and the like. Seems to be something you had been uh, intuited all along was really critical in this, in this way. Yeah, I'll tell you a couple of things. It, one is I get so upset. I visit schools and Ben and I together all the time. But we don't stay for an hour because you can put on a show. We stay for most of the day. And we see what's being used by hardworking, well-intentioned educators is not evidence. There's a lack of understanding of evidence. And now, you know, particularly as an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and other things, evidence is so important. So we talk about it, we give examples of it and try to encourage people to do that. So let's just even look at what is the definition of dyslexia? From the very, and this is all in overcoming dyslexia, second edition. So from the very beginning, the people who are described were smart. Were smart. One article in the British Medical Journal uh, about a boy named Percy, the headmaster said he would be the smartest in the class if it wasn't for reading. But then over time, the unexpected got lost. So we, as part of our studies, we did a study showing that in typical readers, IQ and reading are together. They're dynamically linked. So if you're very smart, you can be a good reader, et cetera. But then we did a study of dyslexics. And in dyslexia, we found you can have a very high IQ and read at a much lower level. So we took that further. We have now testified to the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology on the Science of Reading, and in the Senate Health Committee, and all the time talking about this. And it's so amazing because another thing a longitudinal study has shown, if you ask a school, how many kids do you have who are dyslexic? They'll say, eh, 2%, 3 they don't want to identify them. But we tested every single child and we found one out of five. Wow, that's incredible. That is incredible. Have you seen any, um, aside from your own work, obviously being very impactful, have you seen companies or programs that have been developed on the for-profit side? Have you seen entrepreneurs take on this issue in any way or ed tech take on this issue in any way that's been, you know, well, sort of modern contributions to the science or the uh, solution? Yeah, I think we were honored to be asked by Google to lecture to them on reading. Mm -hmm. And there was another company, Workday. We were invited by Workday because a young man that we had known since he was a young man, brilliant, now is at a high position there. And he said, you have to come and speak to this. So we gave a, a big lecture, but then we spoke to the people who were in charge. Mm -hmm. And that was so interesting because one of the people said at that time, our CS friends, didn't have empathy. She said, you got to have empathy. And we put it in. 
We've also been invited by the X Prize um, to work with them, and they were very interested. So there's there's a, a lot of companies that are beginning. But I think the idea here is it sounds like those are companies that are recognizing the importance of it. Are there any companies, I, if I'm following Alisa's question, that have developed um, sort of sort of tech enabled solution, or have those really been more overhyped? Okay, you know who's the leader in this? Microsoft. Really? And what have they got? Well, Microsoft, we were honored to be invited to lecture there, and now we're actually going to be giving a talk sponsored by them. Well, what they have figured out, what are people who are dyslexic need? So they now have, you know, uh, text-to-speech. Mm. That's so good. And they have just a lot of other things that understand dyslexia because what they've done is they put all their programs on one program so you don't have to go from here to there to get them. Uh, they actually care and, and they have really been wonderful. In the current well, moment with, you know, with COVID going on, the kids, so many kids are being forced to, you know, undertake school from a distance like on Zoom, right? Which is hard enough just to do a podcast, much less actually learn stuff. Um, do you think this is helpful or harmful is for, for kids uh, with dyslexia? Is this going to make it easier or worse? Horrible. <laughs> really horrible. So what I actually have in the book, in Overcoming Dyslexia, second edition, is what parents can do at home. Mm. For example, one of the major aspects of reading and this came from the National Reading Panel, which I was an invited member of and presented to Congress in 2000, is what you can do with your child to have them read fluently. That means accurately, rapidly, and with good understanding. So if you're home with your child, you could pick a segment that's at their level and that they would like for them to read. It's called paired reading. You read it first, you and the child second, and then the child reads it by him or herself. And there's data to show this actually works. So that's a really good thing that you can do with your child. And you can make it fun. You can have poetry readings. So the child practices the poem, and then you practice with him, and then reads it out loud or plays. What I've discovered now is there are plays written for little children but they have, to be, they, they have to be read out loud. So there are a lot of things and there are other things parents can do. I have the most common uh, prefixes, 20 account for 97% of all prefixes and kids can learn those and a whole bunch of other things. So there are things parents can do with their child, but so, one important thing, two, two messages, one practice, practice, practice. Do it frequently, but don't prolong it. Just to, to turn back a little bit to more of the career arc, it seems like one striking aspect uh, is that while you experience your share of what I guess we'd now call microaggression from men, times when guys said you took their med school spots or the surgeons would talk to the men in the room and not to you, it really does, as Lisa was saying earlier, it sounds like your greatest disappointment and frustration has been with so many of the women you've encountered. While with some exceptions like Gail's wonderful Linda Lorimer is a real shining star, but a lot of your peers, as you said, have been like competitive and cutting much more so and supportive and encouraging. 
How do you think about that? And do you see any of that changing um, for kids now? Yeah, I, um, I think it's disappointing. And I think the women could be better, as men can be. But do you think it's because people are competing, that because the opportunities for women were so in any way limited, that people are sort of being forced to compete for the woman's spot at the time? Or, or, you know, with less opportunity, it creates more stress? I, I, you know, that sounds reasonable, but I don't think so. I, 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 you know, the women were just, uh, and maybe it was this particular group of women. You know, remember, you don't want to generalize from a very small end. But it and seems like it's been a repeated pattern. I mean, like in many different cases. You- uh, I must say, as I've gone through my career, uh, there are people um, who I've had interactions with, like Linda Lorimer at Yale, who've been spectacular and supportive. And then there have been other people who've been awful. I just am hesitating to say right, more. Right, right. I don't want to right. Okay, so here's a good question, I guess, to end... Um, end the discussion on. So you were telling me recently about what seemed like a a telling experience you had in 2003 when you were invited to give um, a leadership in medicine seminar for Yale Med students and provided as a title of your talk, A Life's Work, Building a Family, Developing a Science. And then you got a call from one of the med student organizers. Um, Why don't you take it from there? Yeah, no, it was so interesting. There was a lecture series called Leadership in Medicine. And I was honored to present there. And I made um, a, a, you know, a, a poster and it said, a life's work, building a family, developing a science. It was me, who I am. And then one of the medical students, a woman who I had a very nice relationship with, called me and said, oh my God, Dr. Shavitz, the dean is so upset. He thought you should write developing a science first and building a family next. And she said, I said to him, you don't know Dr. Shawitz. This is who he is. And he said, oh, maybe you could ask her to change it. And she says, I don't think she will. She wants to be honest and, and truthful. And I wish more women today would feel more comfortable, not only about having a career, but having a family. Um, When I was uh, pregnant, um, I think it was with you. (laughs) I could have been your brothers. I was an intern and I said, I would like time, it was with you. I would like time off after I deliver, but I'll make it up by taking less vacations and holidays. And I went to see the Dean of the Einstein Medical School, who was a wonderful man named Dr. Henry Barnett. He says, yeah, that sounds workable. And then when the women heard, they booed me. They said, no, we shouldn't allow that. You can't do that. And that is it. Do you think they thought that that was somehow negatively reflecting on them or that it wasn't the image of, um, of, of what they thought people should be? They wanted to make sure that women were respected and not thought of otherwise. And, um, you know, they, they had these, um, these complaints. So um, I, your suggestions of what it could be could have been both. Um, but I, you know, I was happy to, to have the ability to do that. 
but they actually made sure I actually couldn't <laughs> for very long. Yeah, I think it's so interesting right now as we're watching people work from home, how it's, it's you know, people have no, no choice but to show their families, their kids are walking into the scenes, their pets are walking into the scenes, you're hearing, you know, kids asking for food and, you know, all the normal stuff kids do. And both, I think, men and women, um, you know, revealing that they're human and have families and that's part of their lives. I think it's a really um, therapeutic thing for everyone to see. I've had my share of um, calls with people holding their kids in their laps and I think it's great. Yeah, very humanizing. It's quite natural. But um, it's what happens and I'll just go back quickly. I wanted to make sure that little girls knew that women could be doctors. So I wrote an article for Ms. Magazine called Mommy is a Doctor, where I had a bunch of kids, my son's friends and girls and girl with a stethoscope so that people could know that both boys and girls could grow up to be men and women who could have wonderful careers, including medicine. Wow. Well, I, th I think clearly anybody uh, following uh, your career would uh, come away with that impression quite strongly For sure. um, with, with, with all the impact that you've had and uh, uh, um, both professionally and uh, parentally. Uh, and uh, now and now you've even been on our show. So it's, uh, it's fantastic. Okay. Can I say one more thing? Sure. Uh, what I've learned through all of this is that fame is fleeting. You know, the person who I remember is famous 20 years ago, people say, who's that? But what's permanent is family. Mm -hmm. And I have been blessed, and I'm crying now, <laughs> to have the most wonderful husband and children who are just terrific. And now I have grandchildren, five out of six girls. And they're wonderful, and the little boy is wonderful. So it doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl, both are wonderful and deserving of futures. And again, I thank everyone because I feel so blessed. That's great. Wow, well, that's well, fantastic. So to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you for having me. That was fun. Yeah, you know, it's always so interesting to, to look at one's parents as professionals and not as your parents, right? And to step back from all the weird emotional, you know, engagement that you have with your parents and think about them as, in your case, uh, your parents contribute incredibly to science and, and to advancements in their field and are, you know, world-renowned for that. And so it's pretty cool. But it was really interesting. I mean, you, you know, because for these, for all of our discussions, I know we, uh, we, one or the other of us speaks with the guests in advance and, you know, particularly recently, some of these conversations I've been learning, I think we always do, but so much about people, you know, who we always think we know, and then turns out there's so much more to be told. And in this case, in particular, I mean, you know, it's somebody known reasonably well for like, oh, my whole life, and you know, 53 years, and yet I couldn't believe how much I learned. So it, it was really, really interesting, um, exactly to your point. So please remember to um, rate us on iTunes and uh, leave a comment. Uh, help others discover the show. You can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report, and his occasional pieces for the Wall Street Journal and the Bulwark. And you can follow the wonderful, inimitable Lisa Soon at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, for making today's show possible. 
Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in quarantine in Northern California. Don't forget to call your family. Wash your hands. <laughs>